Well, friends, turn with me now in your Bibles to Jonah chapter 1. I'm going to read briefly from Jonah chapter 1. This is a familiar story to many, both in and outside of the church. It's entered into the canon of VeggieTales. It has entered into many places of pop culture. And uh, it's a story that sets for us the context of our story from Acts 27. Our sermon passage this morning will come from Acts chapter 27. But to understand it a little bit, we're going to first look at Jonah chapter 1. This is over at the end of the Old Testament in the Minor Prophets. The book of Jonah, chapter 1. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was about to be broken up. Then the mariners were afraid, and every man cried out to his God and threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. But Jonah had gone down to the lowest parts of the ship and lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came to him and said to him, What do you mean, sleeper? Arise, call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know for whose cause this trouble has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Please tell us, for whose cause is this trouble upon us? What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country and of what people are you? So he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, Why have you done this? For the men knew that he had fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may be calm for us? For the sea was growing more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that this great tempest is because of me. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to return to land. But they could not. For the sea continued to grow more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they cried out to the Lord and said, We pray, O Lord, please do not let us perish for this man's life and do not charge us with innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done it as pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. And offered a sacrifice to the Lord and took vows. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Amen. Jonah's story is a stunning one. 
It's remarkable. And yet this opening vignette that leads us into the story of Jonah is also a familiar one for those who have surveyed the rest of Scripture. As Matthew Topper pointed out a few weeks ago, there are actually only three major seafaring stories in the Bible. It's not a common motif or theme. The three are Jonah here in chapter 1, Paul, who we'll soon examine in chapter 27 of Acts, and in between them, Jesus with his disciples on the Sea of Galilee. These three stories have remarkable similarities. There's a boat. It goes out into the sea when everything looks good. All of a sudden, unexpectedly, a storm descends upon them. The sailors do their best, but they are left hopeless and helpless. They appeal to the one who is sleeping in the boat. They appeal to the one who is not participating. In this case, we are introduced then to the one variant in our three stories. In Jonah's story, Jonah must die. He is thrown overboard to be swallowed by a great fish where he must stay for three days and three nights. An obviously symbolic number for the coming of Christ and his death. In the book of Acts, no one dies. In fact, as you're about to see in Acts 27, that is a major point of the story. No one will die. What has changed? What has been the variable? Why do we go from one must be sacrificed that the ship and its sailors should be saved to all of a sudden Paul can save them all, every one of them? Of course, the difference is Jesus is in the middle. And he stood up and said, Hush, be still. Jesus is the great Savior who overcomes every storm. Jesus, once for all, declared from the boat of his disciples to the storms of this world, peace be still. And from then on, all his people can and will be saved. Jesus is a sure Savior. With that in mind, turn to Acts chapter 27. I'm going to read from Acts 27, beginning in verse 27, and we'll read through the end of the chapter, verse 44. We've already been with Paul at sea for a couple of Lord's Days now. We've already been with him in a bit of the storm two Lord's Days ago, but now we'll look this morning at the conclusion of the storm, their shipwreck on the island of Malta. Acts chapter 27, verses 27 through 44. Here again, the word of the Lord. Now, when the 14th night had come, as we were driven up and down in the Adriatic Sea, at midnight, the sailors sensed that they were drawing near some land, and they took soundings and found it to be 20 fathoms. And when they had gone a little farther, they took soundings again and found it to be 15 fathoms. Then fearing, lest we should run aground on the rocks... They dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, when they had let down the skiff into the sea, under pretense of putting out anchors from the prow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, 
Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the skiff and let it fall away. And as day was about to dawn, Paul implored them all to take food, saying, This is the fourteenth day you have waited and continued without food, and eaten nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take nourishment, for this is for your survival, since not a hair will fall from the head of any of you. When he had said these things, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of them all. And when he had broken it, he began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and all so took food themselves. And in all, we were 276 persons on the ship. So when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship and threw out the wheat into the sea. When it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they observed a bay with a beach unto which they planned to run the ship if possible. And they let go the anchors and left them in the sea. Meanwhile, loosing the rudder ropes and hoisted the mainsail to the wind and made for the shore. But striking a place where the two seas met, they ran the ship aground, and the prow stuck fast and remained immovable. But the stern was being broken up by the violence of the waves. And the soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any of them should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wanting to save Paul, kept them from their purpose and commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to land, and the rest, some on boards and some on parts of the ship. And so it was that they all escaped safely to land. Amen and amen. On a brilliant, sunny summer day, my older brother set out on an adventure, and I was at just the right age to not want to be left behind. So we burst out of the back door of the white farmhouse, trotted out across the yard, and I asked, where are we going? And they, with a chuckle and a laugh, said, you'll see. We went out through the pasture, needing to dodge between the barbed wires. I scratched the side of my jeans and the side of my shirt and put holes in them. I, my mom never mentioned holes in my clothes from barbed wire fences, and I don't know why, because there were hundreds of them. We wove our way between the cows, and I swallowing deeply, hoping that they wouldn't step on me. We got to this thick wall of branches and brambles on the far side of the pasture, and my brothers ducked skillfully like little deer through the little paths that they knew were in it. I myself had to plow through all the briars and brambles, getting scratched on my cheek and my arm, fighting my way through it. We got through it, and not there, where there was the top of a hill, and my brothers began leaping down the hill as fast as they could go, and frightened that I would fall and break my neck, I went as fast as I dared, following them down the hill. The bottom of the hill was a, a thick swampy marshland where there was a pond that drained on both sides and my brothers very skillfully leapt from rock to rock across the little stream bed. I myself sank up to my ankles and then to my calves trying to fight through the swamp and the marsh. On the far side was an uphill 
And they went galloping like horses up the hill, and I, shaking off the water in the mud, went tramping behind them, scratching my bruises and my cuts and my weariness. We got to the top of the hill, and there they were waiting for me. I said, where are we going? And they pointed to a small grove of trees at the foot of the hill and said, down there. And I thought, it's a nice looking group of trees, but an awful lot of trouble to get to a nice looking group of trees. My brothers at that point sprinted down the hill and disappeared into the branches. I went down trudging slowly, grumbling, fussing and whining. This was not the adventure I had signed up for. I passed under the branches into the shade of the trees, and there hung the biggest, juiciest, reddest apples I had ever seen. We passed through all the wild and all the peril to come to this little piece of paradise on the far side of our farm. Beloved, you have a Savior who is wise and who is good, and he will lead you through many perilous places. He will trot you through many dangers. But of this much this morning, I want you to be assured. He will also lead you to paradise. Beloved, your Jesus will certainly lead you through perilous places. But he will also lead you to paradise. Plot on. Follow him. Stick close behind him. Let's think about this a little bit. Let's survey our story. We notice at the beginning that they are, in fact, in a very perilous place. After 14 days, that's a fortnight for those who read, you know, old literature. After two weeks, the night had come. Two weeks of being without sleep, tossed this way and that by a violent hurricane. Two weeks without eating because you only threw up what you put in. Two weeks of struggling against the elements, fearing that death would come at any moment. Two weeks at the very edge of one's humanity, and night had come. Darkness had fallen, the storm was still raging, and somehow in verse 27, at midnight, the sailors sense the shore. These are experienced men, skilled seamen. And they understand that there is something different in the air, something different in the water. Maybe they hear seagulls out in a hurricane. I don't know. And they they, they identify a shore is swiftly approaching. They take their weighted rope with its little knots equally distanced apart, and they drop it over the side. The weight strikes the bottom of the sea. They measure the number of knots that are wet, and they know it is 20 fathoms. They go a little farther, 15 fathoms. They go a little farther, and they realize they are rapidly approaching the shore. Now, as a non-nautical person, I would think that at this point in the story, everybody gets really excited and happy, right? 14 days of being pitched in a hurricane in the sea, and at last we have come to shore. But that just shows what ignorance I have of the sea. They are afraid of the shore. They do not want to come to it under the cover of darkness. They don't know what's there. They don't know where the rocks are. They don't know where the shallows are. It is a dangerous business to come near the coast at this time of night under these conditions. 
And so they drop four anchors out the back to slow down their progress. And they pray for day to come. Have you ever prayed for day to come? Have you ever sat on a cold, dark night and longed for dawn? Have you ever searched into all the sorrows of your heart and all the sorrows of your life and wondered, when will the day begin? When will dawn come? You see, Jesus leads us into perilous places. The storms that drive our hearts here and there and fill us with fear. The storms in our lives that make us wonder and doubt. Does my father really love me? Did Jesus really forgive me? The sorrows and sins that well up within us sometimes bring us to the very edge of shipwreck. And there are two important things in this experience that should stand out to us. First, the shipwreck is unseen. Second, it is inevitable. Notice this position of peril. They cannot see the problem. They cannot navigate the problem. They know a shipwreck is coming. It is inevitable. It is inescapable. But they also can't do anything about it. How many of you have seen a car crash in slow motion? You know that feeling? Have any of you been in that like traumatic moment? Where you watch... And it seems like time freezes. And maybe it's not a car crash. Maybe it's the sins of your children. Maybe it's the sins of your own heart. Maybe you start out with so much joy and expectation. Like a young mother who's finally pregnant and then suddenly realizes, you know what's inevitably and inescapably but yet invisibly at the other end of this pregnancy? Birth. Like the young couple who starts out so full of romance and love and joy. And they just glow with the radiance of their romance. And you know what's at the other end of that marriage? Death. And burial. No one gets out alive. We all walk in perilous places. We all live in difficult times. And we are all heading to some kind of shipwreck one way or another. Friends, we do not get out of this story alive. This is the reality of humans living in this world in sin and misery. But Psalm 90 tells us to count our days. Acts 27 says, take the fathoms. How close are you to the shore? How close are you to the grave? How close are you to the shipwreck? How close are you to doom and disaster? Why is it that if it's inevitable that I'm going to sin horribly against those I love, why is it that if it's inevitable that we're going to die, that we should bother measuring our distance from the shipwreck? The answer is, is because there are things for us to be doing before the shipwreck comes. Biblically, we are not to abandon ship. This is what Paul teaches us in the next couple of verses. Fearing that they should run aground, they cast off their four anchors from the back of the boat. They pray for day to come. Some clever sailors realize that the big boat 
is in grave danger as it comes close to shallow water. But you know what's lashed to the front and the top of this ship? A little boat with oars. And that is the ideal vessel for getting on to the shore under this circumstance. The sailors run to the front, they snap the the ropes, they toss the thing overboard, they turn to the frightened soldiers and prisoners and say, oh, don't worry, we're just going to lower some anchors off the front of the boat. The four off the back are good, but we're going to add some some more to the front of the boat. We'll be right back. Paul sees through the veneer, the facade, and says to to the centurion, to the soldiers, if they don't stay, you don't live. Is this not a peculiar phrase? He doesn't threaten the escaping sailors. He threatens the remaining soldiers. He says, look, you don't understand. If we don't all stick together, we're the ones that die. Don't you understand? We need the sailors to sail this boat into the shipwreck. We're going to wreck. We're going into this perilous place. We're not going to get out of this. And if the sailors who can drive this boat skillfully and successfully into the best shipwreck we can do, then if they abandon ship, we're the ones that die. They cannot abandon ship. Friends, it is so tempting. And it is so easy, particularly for those who are in power, to wield their wealth to avoid the tragedies of unfolding all around them. This is the great and sinister secret of middle-class suburban America. That I can, with wealth and privilege, insulate myself from the pain of poverty. This is the great temptation that faces evangelical Christians in the late hour of the American experience. Should we abandon ship? Should we jump overboard? Because you know what? It's a lot easier to just leave the incompetent politicians driving this thing into the ground to themselves and say, it's your boat. Have fun at the bottom. But that is not the call of Christians. We are called to a life of faithfulness and self-sacrifice and service to others. We do not abandon those less skillful than us. Or more hopeless or helpless. Paul says no we remain. We serve one another. Let us love to the last. Let us serve to the end. The soldiers race forward. Cut the ropes. The skiff falls. They're all in this together. They will all go down together. My friends, is this the vision that we are willing to have and embrace as people who will love this world enough to stay and to say, let us love one another to the end. Let us serve one another to the end. Let us apply this not only to the world. What then should we think of our congregations, our marriages, our children? Sometimes it's really hard to stay, isn't it? Sometimes there is an enormous temptation to believe it's easier elsewhere. And it is stunning to me that in this story, Luke doesn't hide the fact that it would have been better for the sailors to get into the skiff and escape. That would have been easier. That would have been better. But they would have left everyone else to drown. 
This is not what Christ would have us do. We who have hope for the future, we who know this world is not everything, we who love the heaven that is to come, are we willing to bet everything on the future and say, I'm willing to stay here to the end and serve with all I have and love with all I have, knowing I've got something better coming? Or will we abandon ship? Will we jump overboard and leave this world to those who don't know how to run it? Secondly, Paul shows that there are alternatives. There are things we can do aboard a sinking ship. Good things. Wonderful things. Things to do even when we are despairing and drawing near to the edge of shipwreck. Notice in verse 33 through verse 34 and 5, you can eat. I mean, how exciting is that? You can eat. The day is about to dawn and Paul implores them all to take food. Today is the 14th day, he says. You have waited and continued without food and eaten nothing. You have devoted yourself to the survival of this ship so thoroughly that you have deprived yourself of food. You know what? No more. Don't do that. Stop and eat. I urge you, take nourishment, for this is for your survival, since not a hair will fall from the head of any of you. I have this affectionate symmetry for these sailors. Do you guys have that bulldog spirit too? There's a problem. I have to solve it. Hours later, your wife comes in and is like, did you eat? You're sitting at your computer at three in the morning and your wife says, are you going to sleep? And there's a problem and you, and you have to wrestle with it and you have to solve it. And along comes Paul and he says, you know what you really need to do? You need to take a nap. You know what you really need to do? You need to eat. Isn't it a sweet reminder of the grace of God in Christ that we who will one day surrender these bodies to the grave are nevertheless commanded in the most perilous and difficult times to care diligently for these same bodies. This body will one day perish. What should I do with it in the meantime? Take really good care of it. What an amazing ethic. What a beautiful imagination. To say that this life that I cannot keep should be cared for diligently. Paul presses in using the very language of Jesus Christ. Since not a hair will fall from the head of any of you. Your father knows the number of the hairs of your head. I was noticing in one of those two-sided mirrors this last week that the hairs, the number of hairs on my head are significantly fewer than they were the last time I saw the back of my head. Yet my father knows the count. He knows how many I had last time I looked. He knows how many I have now. He knows how many I'll have next year. And and whatever it is, he knows and it's for my best and my well-being. Paul promises not one hair. So you know what you should do? Go brush it. You have been given but a few years on this earth. You will not live forever. This body will shipwreck and it will be laid into the grave. What should you do then? Get a bite to eat. Take a nap. Go exercise. Ride your bike. Go for a walk. Run. 
Friends, how many of you have cultivated these quiet habits of tentative care to the one's physical well-being that says, I know I don't keep this body forever, and yet for the survival of society, we need to be a people who nourish one another, who delight in partaking together of food. Notice that this survival that Paul has in mind, though, is not merely physical. He isn't simply a pragmatist. Like good little Americans, we read this text and we say, you know, Paul realizes that there's going to be a hard job to do here. It's the 14th day. It's almost dawn. The storm is coming to an end. They're about to be shipwrecked. They're going to need all their strength. You know what? Let's take a break. Let's everybody gather our strength. Let's get a bite to eat. Let's get ready for the final push. Do you know how many of us like think that way? You know what we do in Boston? We play in order to keep working. We eat to get back to the job. But Paul has a grander vision in mind of life. Not only does he summon them to the table in the middle of a storm on the edge of a shipwreck and say, hey, here's some bread. Anybody have butter? Not only does he say, come, eat, care for your bodies. Care for the life you still have. He adds to it this beauty. There is an emotional and spiritual component to the care of the human body that we have too long belittled in the West. Look at verse 35. When he said these things, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and ate. When Luke uses those verbs, Luke means business. There are only a handful of places in the book of Luke or the book of Acts where those verbs appear in that sequence. The feeding of the 4,000. Jesus takes the bread, blesses the bread, breaks the bread, and gives the bread. In the night in which he is betrayed, Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples. He takes the bread, he blesses the bread, he breaks the bread, he gives the bread. And on the road to Emmaus, on Resurrection Sunday... The first time the first disciples are gathered with Jesus in the new heavens and the new earth as it was inaugurated, he takes the bread, he blesses the bread, and he breaks the bread. You know what looks like a sandwich to you this afternoon? Could actually be genuine, authentic refreshment for body and soul for those who need fellowship and friendship. These meals that we partake of These quiet feasts, they are an enriching not only to the strength of the body, but to the comfort of the heart and of the soul. Indeed, Luke says that in verse 36. They were all encouraged and took food themselves. Perhaps I'll speak first to myself, to my elders. Brothers, do we eat and do others see us eat? Do we nap and do others see us nap? Dear saints, do we refresh ourselves with one another, that one another might be encouraged to likewise be refreshed, that in all, 276 persons should come together. I'll I'll throw this other gem in there. Luke also has the habit of recording the number of participants at select and special periods of time in his record. I'll let you either ask me about that later or look it up later yourself. But... By recording the number 276, notice what this one little example does. 
In the middle of the storm on the edge of a shipwreck, Paul, by quieting his heart before the Lord and partaking of some bread and, and prayer, leads 276 persons to delight and to rest with him. Notice in verse 38 then, they are sufficiently empowered to take up the wheat and to throw it into the sea. They cast off the rest of their hopes. You see, they've already destroyed the ship. They've thrown over so much of the material that is within the ship that they're going to have to rebuild the thing when they make land. They're already planning to wreck it on the coast, so they're actually going to have to replace it. But when they have that wheat, they still have hope of, require, of acquiring the wealth that they need to repair all of these problems. By taking up the wheat and casting it into the sea, we see the last of their earthly hopes vanish. This quiet little small sea communion in which they partake together nourishes them, encourages them, strengthens them that they are then able to cast off the last of their earthly hopes and to surrender to the inevitability of their shipwreck without fear. So that when day comes, they do not see the land, they do not know where they are. Notice well, having been strengthened through fellowship and through food, they are ready to attack the beach. They raise the sail, they cut the anchors, but they still do not know where they are. They prayed for day and for dawn, hoping that the light would show them the way to the shore. It did not. There was there in the opening of the bay, unseen, invisible beneath the water, a cross current of seas that had over the years piled up into a sandbar. They couldn't see it. But the front of their boat struck fast into it. The front of the boat doesn't move. I'm not the best at physics. Some of you engineering physics types can explain this better. The front of the boat is not moving. It's wedged into the sand. But the ocean behind it is still moving. It is crashing into the back of the boat. And all of the energy of those waves has to go somewhere. It goes in tearing the boat apart. Realizing that the shipwreck has at last come. That they are finally doomed. The soldiers come up with a plan. Notice that it was first the sailors. The sailors have a brilliant idea. I'm going to jump into the little boat. I'm going to you know, row away. And I'm going to leave you all to drown. The soldiers, they're not so like fastidious or clean or whatever. They're just like, no, we're just going to kill you all right here. And then we'll go. Either way. Sailor or soldier, the plan to get out of the shipwreck alive is to kill the prisoners, to kill the powerless, to kill the defenseless. But in verse 43, the centurion wanting to save Paul, wanting to protect his Roman prisoner, wanting to deliver him to Caesar according to his command, kept them from this murderous purpose and commanded them instead overboard. It's time to jump. It's time to swim for those who can swim. Out of curiosity, how many of you can swim? See, this is a, a context, and I know some of you swim a lot better than the rest of us, but 
This is an environment where the vast majority of us can probably make it from this boat to the shore in some reasonable condition. Not here. The vast majority of the Mediterranean world at this time didn't swim. In fact, swimming was for fishes. People died in water. You don't go in water. Water is dangerous. Water is where you go to die. Only crazy people like sailors go into water. The vast majority of this world didn't swim. The few who could went over and swam. The rest had to break the ship apart into pieces, dive into the surf, and ride the broken pieces to shore. Don't miss the imagery. That ship, which you thought was saving your life from the sea, has to be broken into pieces so that you can ride the pieces safely to the shore. Do you see now how our story starts to come together? What a masterful Savior our Jesus is. When He brings us into shipwrecks, when He steers nations into downfalls, when He leads denominations and congregations into chaos, When he takes us into perilous places, his plan does not include the destruction of the prisoners and the poor. It's to save them. In fact, the only thing Jesus destroys in this story is that idolatrous ship that they thought was doing a better job than Jesus. They are bereft of wealth. They are bereft of glory. They are bereft of hope. All their earthly ambitions gone. All their dreams for the future gone. And master, sailor, ship owner, and slave. Sailor and soldier alike. Every single human being is in the exact same position. Soaking wet, clinging to a piece of broken wood for dear life. And if we don't see the semblance to ourselves, we need a new mirror. My friends, Jesus means to lead us into perilous places. Jesus means to steer us into shipwrecks where our hearts break into a thousand pieces. Why? Because He loves the brokenhearted. And He does not despise the downcast. Because this is how he frees prisoners. This is how he turns wicked soldiers into believers. This is how he turns selfish sailors into saints. He destroys our ships and he casts us upon the shores of our hope. And there we sit amid the rubbles of our lives and say, what do I have? And Jesus comes along and says, me. You have me. Beloved, you will get to paradise if you believe in Jesus. But you will not get there with any of the glory of this world. Or any of the wealth of this age. They must sink. And they must be broken in pieces and so must we. He will lead you into perilous places. He will surely shipwreck you. But my friends, as you will find out if you come back next week, 
you land in some sweet places. Beloved, Jesus will lead you into perilous places and on into paradise itself. Follow him. Plod on with him. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the tumultuous storms of this life which rob us of skill and of wisdom, which break us down and humble us before you. Our Father, we confess, we find it hard to count it all joy to face trials of many kinds. Our Father, we do not like the pain and the grief and the sorrow and the loneliness. They are hard to bear. Our Father, we are weak and we are frail and we fear the storms and we fear the wrecks. But our Father, we trust you. And so this day we pray for hearts of faith. Hearts that are confident and sure. That could pray with Job, though he slay me, I will trust him. Father, make this our confession. Make this our hope and the anchor of our soul that extends beyond the veil into the very heavenly places that though all the earth should be removed, we would remain unshaken for we stand fast on the love of God in Christ. We give you thanks for these sweet truths and pray that you would write them upon our lives and in our hearts this week. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.